This is episode 234 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Sarah Blake and her novel, Clean Air. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I am so pleased to have an author with us today. Sarah Blake is with us. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to introduce her. She's the author of Clean Air, which is the book that we're going to be talking about today. I'm so excited to share this book with you. It's described as a cli-fi domestic thriller, and we'll talk about that a little bit. She's also the author of NEMA which is a novel reimagining the story of Noah's Ark, and then some poetry collections, Mr. West and Let's Not Live on Earth. And then coming out next year, a book called In Springtime. She received a literature fellowship from the NEA and the National Jewish Book Award for her debut fiction, which was NEMA. Her work has appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, the American Poetry Review, the Kenyan Review, and more. And she lives outside of London in England. I'd also just want to introduce the book a little bit. And I'm going to try and not to do too many spoilers with this book because I really want you to read it. I really think you'd enjoy it. Uh, Usually when I do these reviews, as you know, I uh, just ask whatever questions I want and spoilers be damned, but there's a lot of parts of the book that will draw you in. So I'm going to try and be careful not to spoil that for you. Publishers Weekly described the book as a skillful blend of post-apocalyptic science fiction, supernatural murder mystery, and domestic drama Uh, which they say is unexpected and entirely engrossing. And I'm like, yeah, but the thing is probably none of those things would have ever gotten me to read the book. Uh, I did do quite a bit of apocalyptic literature during the pandemic, but generally speaking, I don't particularly like those books, supernatural murder mystery and domestic drama. I'm like, ah, that sounds horrible. But I love this book, so don't be put off by uh, that description. There were a couple of other uh, blurbs about the book that I thought were more appropriate, so I'm going to read a couple of them. This is from Joan Silber, who's the author of a book called Improvement, and she writes, Clean Air is the work of a rare and casually powerful literary imagination. It is set in a future that feels all too real, a post-apocalyptic novel that is both a family story and a thriller. It's a remarkable book, a compelling read that haunts with its astuteness. That one felt much closer to write to me. And then one more here for you. This is from Shruti Swami, who's author of A House is a Body. As she writes, Sarah Blake has traveled into the future to create a precise portrait of motherhood in this current moment, complete with one of the most fully realized children I have ever met on the page. 
told with a poet's economy and logic, clean air is a clear-eyed look at the terror and tenderness of motherhood and a parent's ordinary devotion in an extraordinary world. Be warned, you might not be able to put this book down until you reach its final page and you'll enjoy every minute of it. So that one was much closer to my own personal experience with it. So all of that to say, congratulations, Sarah, for this really great book that you've written. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was really lucky. I got beautiful blurbs on this book. Yeah, I enjoyed the book uh, so much. And I got really sucked in to this world that you had created. I kept trying to tell my friends about it, which was kind of funny. They're trying to understand my descriptions of a book that they haven't read of a world that doesn't exist. But I was still very anxious to tell them all these little details of this world. And this idea of this, uh, your imagination, you know, some of it comes across and some of the phrases that you used, one of which, which struck me was the shook the, that the apocalypse shook the world like a snow globe, but left cancer in the mix. You know, these kind of interesting images and also really nifty uh, phrases. The book is also revealed quite slowly, which usually with dystopian novels, it seems like the author is so anxious to share everything that they've created that they kind of dump everything on you in the first chapter. And then, and this is how, and then this other thing, and then there's this thing. Whereas in your book, it's really revealed very slowly and gradually. In fact, at the end of the book, I think we still have lots of questions about how that world works. Someone uh, that I read somewhere along the line mentioned your world building. And so I was curious if you'd had experience with that before and how you went about building that world in your mind. I have done a lot of world building with poems. Uh, Ah. You know, that's a quick world build. (laughs) Uh Um, But I think that that did open up some of the tools. And I, I wrote a really long poem about in Let's Not Live on Earth that's about a woman who chooses to leave Earth on a spaceship that just kind of shows up in the atmosphere one day. And then I got to, uh, so it was like building a world on the spaceship and then building the world that she arrived at. So the, mm-hmm. And there were a bunch of aliens they picked up along the way that each came from their own little world. So I, I got really sucked into the details that are available uh, by whatever I've kind of come come up with. <laughs> And I definitely, you know, I, I watch a lot of sci-fi. I love, I love science fiction. I love Star Trek and Star Wars. So I, I've always lived over there in that realm. I, and then it started to come into my writing. It took a while, but it finally came in. Um, and then uh, when it got there, I couldn't, I couldn't quite stop. And and it's really how, um, how NEMA started too. Like I got obsessed with the idea of the arc as a, as an environment and a space and the mm-hmm. darkness and the smelliness. And so some, a lot of things start with the world building for me. And that's how this book was too. Like I fell in love with this idea of the world when I was getting allergy shots every week. Cause I, my allergies started to send me to the ER every spring. And I was like, okay, I need to make an adjustment. Mm. And while I was thinking there, I was like, oh, what, what if there was a world where this happened to everybody, <laughs> not, mm-hmm. not just a few of us? Um, and, and yeah, and the, and the world kind of started from there. But when I, 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 when I world build, a lot of it is in my head or in pictures. I really love to draw pictures of things. Uh, it takes a while for things to grow. And, and I usually really need a strong center, central character to fall in love with a book and want to write about her every single day. Um, so I started writing this book actually with a series of letters from 
mm-hmm. um, which, you you know, there are letters in the book, yeah. um, but this this was like 40 pages of letters just from Isabel to Cami. And, and it wasn't until I was done that, that I was like, oh, now I now I know my characters. Uh, and so, yeah, my my approach is kind of to to have the world built and my characters mm-hmm. established in my head, which takes me a while. I'm not someone who hears characters. They don't pop in. They're not fully built when I come to them like they they I have to work <laughs> to work really hard to build them. Um, and then I start to tell their story and then I just let the world come in as it comes in. I'm like, okay, well, today she has to take a car ride. So I have to explain how that works. Uh-huh. And I already know in my head. Um, but I haven't put it in. So I think that's part of the why. If it if it never came up as I went along telling my story, then I just never put it in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was it was an interesting way. And some things I hadn't even figured out because I was so focused on this, this idea of a utopic dystopia that was that because you've gone 10 years further down the line and people have sort of figured things out. Uh, that I forgot about um, spending too much time on the downfall. And so I hadn't really sorted that out till I was at the end of the draft. And then all that information ended up coming to the front of the book mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, on a later draft. Um, Cause I was like, Oh, well, I, that doesn't really make sense to have at the end, but that's just how long it took me to, to parse it in that first draft. So, yeah, so I, it takes a lot of drafts for me, but it's, that's, it's a really fun part for me too. Yeah. The way that a, heard for you is really reflected in the book because yeah as things happen because it's 10 10 years after the apocalypse to the extent that it's relevant then it's revealed to the reader but you've really let the story drive the disclosure of those details where I suspect it's the reverse for a lot of authors right they're really anxious to tell about the the world And it, however it happens, it was very effective in this one because it it keeps you turning the pages because you're, you're curious, right. To find out more. And maybe she's going to tell us a little more in this next one. (laughs) You kept torturing us throughout this. (laughs) (laughs) So it was funny, this whole issue of pollen and you've mentioned allergies there. So I live in San Diego where we do get a lot of Uh, tree pollen in the spring. And it doesn't uh, trigger allergies for me, or at least I don't think of it that way, but it does cause me quite a lot of distress with my eyes. And so I related a lot to all the imagery about pollen and this yellow pollen uh, everywhere. And so, yeah, tell me more about how you got thinking about pollen and, and also how do you feel about trees? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, it's funny because so I, I, I got asthma at eight. And so all these things I'd never been allergic to, I suddenly was allergic to. <laughs> I'd been able to be around animals and my grandparents had a little farm and I, all of that was fine. And then all of a sudden um, we got this like little pet parakeet and all of my allergies went bonkers and they were doing all the skin tests on my, the pinprick tests on my back. And, wow. um, and yeah, and my asthma was just in full swing. And it wasn't until that parakeet died, which my this, the, the test said I wasn't allergic to birds. And we think that was wrong. Because once the bird died, I started getting better. Um, oh. yeah. yeah, that's kind of a better test. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, we, we could have made a few changes more quickly. We could have rehomed the bird if we'd understood. <laughs> Right. Uh, but yeah, so I started getting better. It, w- it was always a problem with sports. I was, I really, I was a big athlete in high school, you know, not, not past that. 
<laughs> but, but, um, so anytime I, I, I played sports, I had to use my inhaler and, wow. uh, and then it kind of went away for God over a, a decade too. It was, uh, it was, yeah, I didn't, I didn't notice cause I wasn't going out and playing a two hour field hockey game or anything, you know, mm. like, so I wasn't, it wasn't that kind of relationship with exercise anymore. If I started to get asthma, I could just kind of stop. Um, uh-huh, no, right. no, 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 nothing. but not in the middle of a field hockey game. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so I, I, I hardly used my inhaler. My allergies weren't that bad. We lived in a bunch of different places around the country. Um, and I guess, you know, you, some places are worse than others. You never know what mm-hmm. you're going to end up near, uh, or what's going to set you off. And, uh, yeah, so we were back in the Philadelphia area and, it was, it was fine at first. And then I remember every spring it just got worse. And I finally ended up in the ER, just completely unable to breathe. My rescue inhaler was not working. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ended up putting me on a steroid inhaler and that cleared it up, but I did need to go back on that for six months. And it was really an ordeal. And I wasn't, and it, it messed with my anxiety and all these things mm-hmm. that, uh, so, oh, not, not a fun thing, but worth it to get my breathing back to normal. And then, yeah, and they were like, well, the best thing you might do is these allergy shots, which, you know, start weekly and then go every other week and then once a month and you spread it out. And it's this, I didn't even get through the whole thing. I got through three years and then we decided to move. And actually in the United Kingdom, they said, they're like, you're not going to be able to continue your shots over there because there's a, a lot less diversity of plants. So it's a lot less common. They'll, instead, if they find that you're very allergic to something specific, then they might do the um, these drops that you do under the tongue or, or something that's very tailored rather than because the shots you can put like a million things <laughs> I see. <laughs> like you, you get it in one arm for plants and one arm for uh, animals. Wow. And But anything that they can group together, they do. And you just get a, a giant shot in each arm. Wow. <laughs> and then you wait and make sure, yeah, you sit there for a half an hour and make sure you're not having some horrible reaction to it. Yeah, um, right. yeah so it's, it's a huge undertaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily we had health insurance that covered a good deal of it. Um, but yeah, but then when we came here, they're like, you might not have a problem. And it's true. Uh, my allergies are way more minor here. Uh, and yeah, I guess you never know. Of course, this week is I, I shouldn't even say that because this week I am feeling it. It's my throat is scratchy and my eyes are going crazy. And mm-hmm. but then we took the bus down to the beach and like nothing. It all went away. Mm-hmm. It, cleared. Mm-hmm. it came back to my town. It goes crazy again. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so I've had a really interesting relationship with plants, especially going through the testing all again. When you're an adult, they can fit all of the pinprick tests on your arms because you're you have big arms now. <laughs> Right. And I have all the pictures I of all the like 40 some tests they do and they do intradermal so they can uh, on your upper arm to figure out um, exactly which trees and which weeds and uh, like I remember a, a weeping willow tree that which is like one of my favorite trees and I can see one from my back window and that was like the welt that was the biggest on my arm like my arm just went crazy. Oh wow. Um, so yeah so I it's funny because I, I love trees and I grew up um in a backyard with a giant maple and my mother had filled underneath it with pachysandra because you can't grow grass. It gets so shady under a maple. And we had two big oak trees and we had a dead dogwood in the side yard that was always covered in spiders and, but daddy long legs. And so we would climb on there and we'd be playing with the daddy long legs. And then we had an alive dogwood in the front yard. So, and my mother loved plants and she was always naming plants. And so I, 
got really used to like, even I was always like, I don't care about flowers. I still am kind of like that, but I do find that I can name so many just because she just constantly did it. She'd be mm-hmm. like, oh, look at that rhododendron. Oh, look at that. <laughs> uh-huh, right. Um, so yeah, she really introduced uh, like this love of plants to me and uh, and she was a biology teacher too. So that was a large part of it. So yeah, so I love trees. And um, in the in the book, Cami has her tree friend and my son had a tree friend at the, oh. hit the bus stop. Um, so that was where that had come from. So uh. it, it became a big part of his life and my life. And yeah, he loved to like go up and hug his tree friend and wave goodbye and hello to it every day at the bus stop. <laughs> when mm-hmm. I think it got more attention than I did sometimes when he uh-huh. came home from school. <laughs> Yeah, isn't it interesting how these relationships have been so neatly transported into your book? I mean, this whole sort of love-hate relationship with things that yeah, can hurt you, but that, yeah, that we really like. Yeah, amazing. The book is, is I came up with this phrase, at least I think I did, though maybe I heard it before, this genre-bending book. I think that's so cute. <laughs> and that it's... Um, both dystopian and also about a serial killer. So I was curious about the serial killer part of it. Did you read a lot of thrillers? Did you read a lot of crime? And how affected were you by the quote-unquote rules of that particular genre? Yeah, I... I read a lot of, um, I don't know, like mysteries, I guess, growing up. Mm-hmm. Like I loved Agatha Christie. I love my my librarian handed me this whole set of ones about a British detective. I don't even remember anymore because I was, I was young. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what, with the library, I didn't pay attention because they didn't stay on my shelf. You know, you just like, I just devoured them and then sent them back. Yeah. And I was like, give me more. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, and I read a lot of mysteries and, and a bunch were murder mysteries. Um, and that kind of just changed into a love for every procedural crime television drama I can I can get my hands on like I've watched probably everything on Netflix that I that is at all tied to that genre and I I love them I love uh, how they wrap things up in single episodes but also sometimes have a a story they're telling across a season I love the (laughs) British ones I love the American ones (laughs) I love the ones that you can kind of see uh translated across multiple different uh, countries and you're like oh this is I watched this but in English right? because <laughs> um, I forget is it the bridge or the something? bridge that's when I was thinking of the bridge yeah, and the see, tunnel I, uh-huh. yeah. yeah it's yeah. really it's really interesting how it changes depending on the culture of the audience yeah it's yeah but also like such a similar story like I remember it took me a while on one and I was like wait a second <laughs> Oh, you I didn't realize that. Well, I've seen this before. This. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, I definitely, I don't remember these people. Uh-huh. So yeah, it took me a second because it was years between uh, watching them. Because um, when I was, oh, I found this thing on Netflix and I haven't seen this one yet. And yeah. And then it was like, oh, I kind of have. Uh-huh, that feeling of deja vu, right? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, somehow different. Was this a dream? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so it was really interesting. I actually, I almost stopped writing this book at one point because I was so um, confused about how to handle the serial killer part because I loved uh, procedural so much and I wanted to do justice to that storyline. Mm. But I was also interested in as always with like a level of realism that doesn't really 
come with those sometimes, you know? Correct. Um, exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, you know, at first, in the first draft of the book, the killer is never someone who she comes across, um, okay. at which makes sense because you don't mm-hmm. find mm-hmm. a killer until you <laughs> find them. Right. <laughs> Usually, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and I, I really loved listening to Serial, the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that was really, that reminded me of that, right? Like just, right, cops are cops. They didn't ever come across this boy in the ice cream shop or wherever. Like they they investigate and then they find someone and then they make a case against them. I wanted to to straddle this this yeah this weird space that happens between what's satisfying as a reader, what's satisfying mm-hmm. in a plot, but also keep it in that realm of realism that I find really interesting to play with with literary fiction and those uh, th- that kind of attention to human nature and the the weirdnesses that come with that. People are. I know people look for who might the, who the killer might be. Though it, it seems pretty clear that no nobody quite figures out who it is until the end, um, which I was glad about because because I think I I th- I hope I kind of successfully uh, played that line. Um, but I do I know in some ways like it, the ending is disappointing for some people. Uh, it, it does uh, seem too tidy. And um, but I know one of the reasons that I kept going with it was right when I was really struggling with the book Mindhunter came out on Netflix, uh, uh-huh. which, you know, is a fictionalization, but of a true story. And the guy yeah. who wrote the book said, like, this is pretty accurate, like stuff about my life isn't accurate, but stuff about the research is like pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, like, there's something about the way we've. I don't know, fantasized almost mm-hmm. about serial killers, serial killer stories. It's not exactly true to what, to their relationship to their crime and the detectives. And some of it is and some of it isn't. And, and so I realized like, I didn't need to make him perfect. I didn't need to make a bad guy that we fell in love with. I didn't mm-hmm. need, you know, which are, which are some of the things I like most about the TV shows I watch, you know, mm-hmm. like I love killing Eve. I love loving the, the the psychopathic killer mm-hmm. in the middle of things mm-hmm. um but this you know this story was Isabel's I didn't want it to be torn between also being the killers uh, though it does but o- but only through her and her kind of dealing with uh, like you know are my feelings are my impulses like a killer's impulses um so and that I I was I was really thrilled with the way I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish okay. um, but I do mm-hmm. I do know it's not uh it's got a different ending than you would may, maybe expect from the from the genre yeah I think that's how I, I'm glad that you like how it came out because I can imagine that there's some pushback from of the people who expect you know the very traditional representations in this genre of how we always do it in this genre. But this book isn't that way. And in fact, I would say, not that I've ever met a serial killer, I think, but it to me, it does seem more realistic. Like this is what how the world actually works when you have a killer like that. And so, I, yeah, that's how I would see it too, that it's just more realistic. But of course, yeah, when we're consumers of a certain genre, we do uh, often f- take a lot of comfort from the way we think it's going to play out. And and this book is different. That that's just all there is to it. But uh, but I'm glad that you kept it in and didn't give up on that. I think there's 
it adds some interesting things to the book, particularly uh, the letter writing that we're going to uh, talk about in a few minutes. So I I have to talk a little bit about the prose. Since you are a poet, it, it's it's always interesting to read, read prose written by a poet. And there's a certain directness to the prose. I initially started calling it like muscularity to the prose, but I, I think that term is actually being used in a different way than I meant it. But it's sort of this, there's a punchiness to sometimes your word choice uh, or a punchline or a kind of tough word. And the first one that I saw comes quite early in the book when Isabel and her husband um, have this kind of uh, heat between them when she's leaving to go somewhere, maybe to take Cammy to school or take her daughter to first school. And she and her husband exchange kind of a sexy smile. And it's a kind of smile you write that uh, a couple might exchange when they're uh, on the on the uh, edge of going to the bedroom. But you write it was an easy enough smile to give when they both knew that they didn't have to deliver. And it's that word deliver that, of course, caught my eye. And there are many others like that. So I was curious if you felt that being a poet helps you write that way, or did are there other influences that give your prose that kind of punch? Yeah, I, I see a lot of how I write my poetry and how I write my prose, which is funny because for years I thought, I only know how to write poetry. I'll never be able to write prose. I just mm-hmm. found an email to a friend I wrote the other day where I was like, I'd really like to be able to write fiction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah and like something just hadn't clicked in my brain yet and it just it just took a while to get there um, but then yeah I find my prose is not really so far from how I think about how I think about poetry uh, and I, I my poetry gets a lot of criticism because it is very direct I don't know what muscular means but I would totally describe it as muscular oh, okay. um, like well, you and I can describe it that <laughs> yeah. way <laughs> um, yeah because it's kind of like lean and mean and mm-hmm. like yeah like a lean mean fighting machine that's a mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and that's kind of what I like to go for I'm very I don't know like you said direct it's it's economical, but also in a way to be punchy. I, I love to cut through to an observation that just kind of lights up a paragraph. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of where I kind of notice like, oh, this is what this section was about. This is what this paragraph is about. And if I don't, like if I get through a scene and I haven't had a paragraph that delivers for me on on kind of like a different sort of emotional level and is a little bit insightful and a little bit surprising that I haven't really done my job. And mm-hmm. I find I'm kind of, I've become a little bit critical of this as a reader too, where I'm like, where's at least one sentence, like give me one mm-hmm. sentence where you just kind of nail it for me, like bring uh-huh. me home. Um, so yeah, I, I get a lot like that. And I think that has a lot to do with how I think of poems and how I think they should deliver <laughs> to mm-hmm. speak of that. I know, right? Yeah, uh, appropriate yeah. for us to use that word. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I, I, it has a lot to do with that. Um, and I do find, I've been reading some other books too, where I'm like, oh, this poet who's been writing, like, oh, they use a ton of adjectives and they do in their poems too. Like, this makes sense. Like, you can start to see like uh, the the ticks that come about in both, in both styles. Um, sure. And yeah, I definitely have mine. (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes, you know, it's interesting you talk about that kind of wrapping it up because sometimes there's a scene 
in clean air where things are kind of going forward. And we as a reader might be sort of forming some uh, kind of uh, observations about what's happening. And then Isabel will have, you'll, uh, you'll comment in there what Isabel is thinking. And it often is this not quite sarcastic, but, uh, you know, sort of an aside, a witty aside that is in italics in the book and is often quite funny, right? This, so there's one that I remember where kind of things are going along and then there's a shift in the conversation and Isabel says to herself, that changed fast. <laughs> and that's kind of what we were thinking too, right? But it, but it, it, it's, it makes you relate to her and it's often quite funny, right? Yeah. I love making jokes. It's, it's when I realized how to do that in poems, like the whole world mm. lit up for me. I was like, oh my God, I love this. Like I, cause wow. I do it all the time in my, in my real life. Like I'm a giant goofball. I love to make my friends laugh and my family laugh and, and they're silly too. So like I, I surround myself with silly people and I, I laugh a lot. Like that's whenever I meet a child, I they always go, why do you laugh so much? <laughs> Uh -huh. I know this is my personality. So when I started writing poetry, it was very much what you'd expect. It was melodramatic and sad. And, and I was like, this is fun. And I, and I'm learning and I'm understanding emotions and imagery. And I was really focusing a lot on like how the line works and the line versus the sentence. I was like, but it doesn't quite feel like me yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't until I started to learn how to be funny on the page that I was like, oh, I like, I like this. Um, and that comes a lot more easily to me with fiction. Uh, and I, and I love, I love making jokes. <laughs> I don't, and I love, I even love getting to read back a draft that, you know, cause you get 300 pages in, you don't remember the first 100 pages too, too well. So I love when I crack myself up on a reread, I'm like, oh, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, I do that too, although I'm not yeah. as funny as you are. Yeah. There's, there's actually quite a bit of black humor in the book. You know, some of these asides, as we mentioned from Isabel, uh, but also like this one also that caught my eye talking about, uh, well, and it just seems so appropriate for how we're living right now is that there are all these potential catastrophes that could have occurred, right? All these other apocalypses, which were possible, but then you wrote in the book, but this one had won the race. This one is the one that wiped us out first. I mean, yeah, so I was curious if you particularly like black humor or did it just seem appropriate for a dystopian book? No, it's everywhere with me. I always think that I'm, being particular to a certain project. And then I realize I've done it everywhere. And I, I just really, <laughs> I enjoy dark humor a lot. And I think you nailed it with, uh, there's a level of sarcasm <laughs> that, um, that I, that I find really appealing. And also just, I like, I'm a very strange person, you know, when you, whenever I teach, I often find that I'm pushing my students to find what makes their perspective unique. Cause they often think, they're not that unique. And I'm like, you definitely are. Like every, everybody is doing that with them also helped me do it for me, you know, to look inwards and be like, okay, well, what, what is the weird thing? And, and I remember like it happened a few times being in a workshop setting is so helpful um, for so many reasons. But I remember I wrote one poem about seeing a branch on the ground. Um, it's in the, it's in the Mr. West collection. 
um, and uh, it looking like a dead arm to me, like a, with a, with fingers and everything. And I had said it so casually in the poem, like, you know, anyone might mistake a limb from a tree as a, a body <laughs> part, a limb. body's mm-hmm. limb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my friend just says, like, I think you're the only person. <laughs> mm-hmm. Look how weird <laughs> who, who, you are. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I don't think we all go around seeing body parts around this. Because I think I said, oh, you know, and I saw a glove the other day that kind of looked like a hand. And he was like, no, no, Sarah. <laughs> Um, and I and I did I did another poem that uh, oh I don't think it's ended up in a book but it was published in Sentence which was a magazine all for prose poetry that I adored and at one point it talks about a woman who is like gone to the bathroom and like wipes herself and I remember which you know is in clean air I like to do just like body scenes I like to be very direct and plain and clear about all the things that we go through in our days um, but I remember one of my friends in that class was like I think you've gone a bit too far. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, so like, here's this line that for other people, it's uh, where, where it crosses Mm -hmm. over to like too gross or too much or whatever. And for me, I am just like up there in that space. Fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm not grossed out. I'm not bothered. I'm not, uh, I I don't even notice like, and I think it's important. And like, it, it would be so nice if we were all more casual about talking about some of these things. So, yeah, so I, I, I've, I've wandered around there. Um, but just to say, I, I really tried to hone in on what uh, makes me a very weird thinker. And part of that is that I, I do get dark and weird and I do see dead bodies and whatever, you know, like I, I go that way. Um, so I often give that to my characters and which makes them a, t- a tad unlikable sometimes, but for a lot of people make them wholly likable and relatable because we, a lot of us have these dark thoughts. We just don't often tell anybody because what are you going to say? Like, <laughs> I, I saw details out there. <laughs> yeah. I see dead people kind of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or when that we're going to talk about, I see a missing finger. Yeah, yeah, there definitely. And it's interesting too because of this whole genre bending thing that that I'm thinking about with your book is walking this line that's often a conventional line, but kind of going off in directions where you suspect there's going to be a reader or two out there that will relate to that. But sometimes these genres do, you know, work to constrain you. So I think that's partly what makes your book so interesting is that there is that, you know, it's just like as me talking to my friends about this book, it's because it's different. And so that in some ways that makes it interesting because you haven't read anything like that before, but it might startle some people, especially the whole issue of motherhood, which, you know, this, uh, yeah, this theme that is so protected in American life. But it's a really important aspect of clean air. And a lot of Isabel's internal thoughts are about being a mother. And the her daughter, the character of Cammy, really struck me as spot on. And, and so it enhances the motherhood theme because she really talks the way a child speaks. You know, some of the switching of voices, you know, where first she's like, you know, super sweet. Oh, have a nice day. And then she'll switch into the evil monster voice, you know, until I eat you or, you know, something (laughs) like that. Or there was one that was so funny where she's talking to herself and she's like, 
oh no, I'm in the oven. And today was supposed to be a good day. <laughs> these, uh, these are so typical of children and uh, of real children, I should say. And the, there's another funny one where she spits on the floor to show how uh, wicked she is. And so then she tells her parents, I've done terrible stuff. See, I spit on the floor. Oh, there's so much of it uh, that I that really cracked me up. It seemed so realistic, right? And so how much of Cammy is based on real children? Well, they're like 99% my my own child. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Not many children, just him. Okay. <laughs> um, uh -huh. There are a few moments of other kids that are other kids that my son has known mm -hmm. that aren't him but I tried to give him specifically to Cammy and okay. and Cammy to him and I I hope I really I can't wait till he's old enough one day to like enjoy it and know that a lot of these stories are just directly from him like he he directly said the hilarious lines about the the person in the oven like and my husband and I just started laughing mm -hmm. so hard like it was such a Right. Mm -hmm. This is supposed to be a good day. And I was like, oh Darn. <laughs> uh -huh. um, yeah. So it was great. I mean, it's funny because I'm I'm terrible at any kind of journaling, keeping a diary. I've never been able to do it. I have so many on my shelf that have like one page, mm -hmm. <laughs> like one day in my life. And I'm like, well, that was me trying that thing. But when I was writing uh this book. It was, he was just at the perfect age. So many of the things he was saying were so amazing and strange and playful, um, but dark. And, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I love them so much. And so as I was writing every single day, so it just made sense to incorporate as much as I could. And as much as I could remember, like as I was going, like I could never pull this off now probably mm -hmm. because I, I don't have access to like that four to six year old range of just like, what did you just say? Right. <laughs> Um, and it's so great. And a lot of those, the, a lot of the stories that, that Kaito tells in the book are, are stories he was interested in because he fell in love with yokai and yokai watch the show. I think it's on the Disney channel now. Oh, And so he got, and he also has a dream of like moving to Japan one day working for Nintendo, like he has it all mapped out. So he once has always wanted to know everything about Japanese culture as he can. So he asked me to find Japanese fairy tales and all this. So like we we went through all this. So I really did get to see some of his reactions to some of these stories as a really little kid um, and, and see which things he's drawn to and which things he gets impassioned about. And uh, yeah, it was really, it was really great. And I think the spitting on the floor, I don't think he did that. I think I made that one up. Mm -hmm. um, but he did, he would go under the table if, if, that was his spot for like, I don't like what's going on here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just, mm -hmm. That was his, spot. I remember, I remember I like to play in a kitchen cabinet that was mostly empty. That was my spot. Mm -hmm. But I went there just to play. Like, I don't know how my parents didn't freak out all the time about like where I was because I would just close myself in there and disappear. 
So yeah, so it was it, it was great to get to to capture him as as well as I really would want to. Uh, I I think about that all the time now. Is like, is there a way I can? Because now he's eleven. I was like, oh, is there a way I can capture this age? Because this age is wonderful too, in such mm-hmm. a different way. And I I I haven't figured it out quite yet how to how to capture. It. It's a it's a little trickier. But but Cammy, everything just came at the right moments for for Cammy to be created. Yeah, she's she's really she's just wonderful. And as that person said, you know, so fully realized, we feel as though if we met Cami on the street, we would recognize her. One thing I would say about 11 year old boys is if you do find a way to incorporate him into a story, you know, there's such a dearth of good writing for uh, that age of boy. I mean, of course, Harry Potter was the huge exception, but I think partly it was really so successful because there aren't a lot of other books that appeal to that age group. So if you could find a way to capture him, I think you could write a really great, uh, I guess, middle ages, like middle, middle middle grade, Uh middle grade. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'd love to. Yeah, because there there is kind of a dearth there, but and I think with your touch, your humor, that darkness, I think you could write a really great book if you were inclined to yeah, you know, take on so. yet another genre. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't. That's we read every night together, and we read some really fun stuff. So I'm always like, can I do this? Can I just get some dragons in there? Where's my dragon book? <laughs> yeah, I agree. That's, that's his it. favorite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. You know, and we saw so much of that in the Harry Potter books, but and they're just fantastic, right? They're just fantastic. Um, And, you know, there are a few others that I can think of, but not very many. It, you know, it's just not, I don't know. There's just not a lot that's written for that age that's that good. Yeah, there's a lot of new ones. They're constantly coming out. And uh, yeah, I I should put together a list because at this point, I think I've read everything with dragons. Mm Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> For the last five years, um, yeah, and there are some really spectacular ones. Uh, if you haven't read "Where the Mountain Meets the Moon," it's, oh, no, I haven't it's read really that. fantastic. And okay. it, there's a there's a collection of three uh, that that you don't need to read them together, but you can. And but yeah, she's magical. So <laughs> okay, cool. There's a good recommendation for us. So let's talk about letter writing, which is also such an interesting part of the book. The book isn't long or particularly complex, but it has a lot of stuff in it. And one of them are the letters that Isabel goes to a special place. I won't uh, spoil it, uh, but she goes to a special place and writes letters. Um, She writes to her daughter. She also writes to the serial killer, which is, and these letters are just fascinating. So I was going to ask you about letter writing. Is that something that you do? Do you find it therapeutic or did it, was it just for the book? Yeah, it's something I've always wanted to do. It's like the journaling. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I think the most letter writing I've ever done was when I had a pen pal in France as part of a school project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, I was like, okay, well, I have to do this. But mostly, no, I always feel like when I start writing to my friends, uh, I've tried to do, e- uh, not emails, I do emails all the time, but I've tried to do letters and postcards and things like that over the years. And I just, uh, <laughs> 
do a terrible job mm-hmm. or I feel like I'm just kind of narrating my life. I don't, you know, I, what was really fun about doing it with Isabel is she was really trying to, you know, she, it was, she felt like this might be her last chance, like that she might die any second. She needs to teach her daughter everything she wants to teach her mm-hmm. um, or she needs to come to terms with something very particular that's going on with the killer. So she, she has these big things. And I, I do sometimes think about writing like that. Like if I would want to write letters to my son, just in case, you know, in Uh case something happened or, or just that would be nice to read later when, when we're not talking about specific things. And it's like, oh, well, there's, there's this, but yeah, I never do it. I always think I'm going to do it and I never do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's one of those things where it was so great that this character that felt so true to her mm-hmm. and what she would, she would do and the kind of moment she would need to process all the things that were going on in her life, but in this very unique way, because she, her voice changes a little bit, you know, because the book is told in third person limited. So it feels like her, but it's not really her. It's technically some other narrator. Um, But then in the letter writing, you really hear her and it's a little bit different. And she's, uh, I, I love her voice. If I could write a whole novel and just her voice, I think I'd get a kick out of that uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah so I I yeah I loved writing them but I think they were really Izzy's thing and not not so much mine mm-hmm. yeah you definitely get a lot of insight to her she too is such a fascinating character how she sees things but of course hard for us to relate to because we haven't been any through anything like she has but she definitely felt you know palpable to me very uh, yeah, very real in this uh, strange, uh, unreal situation. There's, there are a lot of things in the book that just seem weird. And one of them to me was that Cammie wants to buy a stuffed emoji. And the emoji that she picked out is the one that has uh, the hearts for eyes and and when I read that, I was like, okay, that's just really trippy and weird. And then I noticed at some point that that's real. You could actually buy stuffed emojis. It was like, oh my God, our real, our real world is weirder than I thought it was. So I wondered if there were things that you thought up that you thought were new to your world, but in fact, turn out to kind of exist already in our world. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those, what was really fun about it was to, we're just hate things that are right now. Like I, we have that stuffed emoji upstairs. Oh, I see. We have it. Uh (laughs) Um, But placing it in the book made it feel weirder. And so that was, it was a really fun thing to do is like, take these things that we treat as normal and they're really so bizarre. Like even yeah. I tried to capture that with describing some of the TV shows too. And, but just to describe them in a slightly off kilter way, there's mm-hmm. like, it is, it's like those Twitter feeds that go crazy where they're like, just tell this story again, but wrong answers only or tell it badly mm-hmm. or whatever. And then people just write things yeah. a little off. Uh-huh. Um, but that it's delightful about them. Um, right. So I, I, I tried to do that a lot. I do. I get made fun of a lot by my um, my first readers and my family that I sometimes have this bad habit of predicting bad things, uh, like that I write them first and that I'm prescient, but only with like uh, bad things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I definitely, uh, you know, got a little bit of that. And it is funny when you, like some of the things I can't tell what order I made them up 
and what order I research them. Cause you know, uh-huh. you start to have an idea. And so you start to research. Mm-hmm. And so then the idea that comes up is a whole jumble of like things you've kind of thought about in your head, but also all these things from the, like five articles you read about, you know, Mars research. Cause I, cause I did a lot of like, well, what would a bubble planet community look like you know and like what what do dome communities look mm-hmm. look like and, and and also but you know you don't you don't have the all the limitations of space and different gravities and whatever so you really can you can just make that cement platform and put in the things you need and um and so I watch some communities that are more like that being built from the ground up and the way they lay pipe work and uh in floor heating and all these things. And it was it's wild to while like, you can watch videos of some of this stuff. Yeah. So yeah, so there were uh oh, and with the cars too, you know, there there are self-driving cars. We just we just kind of, unless you live in some place like Vegas where they're really using them, then you just kind of hear stories about them, mm-hmm. but you don't actually see them around that much. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was taking a lot of things that are enough around that mm-hmm. <laughs> that I was familiar I, and I could just kind of extrapolate from there. That's really where I enjoy a lot of what I'm doing is with extrapolation. Uh-huh. Yeah, you have such an interesting eye for things like that. So you also write about anxiety really well, or so it seems to me, I'm not a particularly anxious person, but there were a lot of scenes there that I thought, I I think if I were more anxious that I would see things that way. There's one uh, scene where Isabel is watching Cato's hand go through Cammie's hair. And she, for a fleeting moment, imagines that that hand is emerging, missing a finger. It's such a creepy image, but to me, it feels like a manifestation of, of, of how that kind of anxiety, you, you know, would display itself. So I was curious, like, um, how familiar is that, is that kind of fantasizing to you? Yeah. I mean, well, that for sure just happened one day where my, I mean, now ex-husband, but has put his hand through my son's hair. And I just thought of his hand like that. And I don't, I, it's funny because I don't really tie that with my anxiety, but of course my anxiety is always there. <laughs> but yeah, because I, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was quite young, when I was 15. Mm-hmm. And then I went off everything to do my pregnancy and things went pretty well. I, you know, most of my triggers that were around during school age were gone by the time I was out of school because <laughs> right, yeah. they were mostly mm-hmm. based in school. So yeah, so it was a very different experience being off meds again. And then your hormones go crazy and they sort a lot of things out for you. Hmm. And it wasn't till after breastfeeding and all of that um, was done that then oh, it was like symptoms started to come back a little bit. I started to have trouble falling asleep again. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I know what this is. Um, but what everything that came back was more the anxiety side of things. Like I definitely have mood swings. I'm very familiar <laughs> um, with how that looks, but I haven't needed to medicate for them. I have, but I have need very much. So to medicate the anxiety, the anxiety came back <laughs> really strongly. And especially I think because then I started publishing and being in the public in that way is just something 
you don't really know what it's like and, and you not, don't know how you're going to physically react or emotionally react to it until it gets to you. I see. And I didn't like it. <laughs> I still, I, I, st- <laughs> um, I, st- I still don't like it. Um, but I also, but there's also things I really do like it. Like I'm one of those people who I'm, a, I'm a total extrovert. I love being around people. I get so much energy from being around people. Like I'm not someone who gets exhausted from being around people. I'm like, I can't fall asleep for three hours because I just had a great conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also the kind of person who like, I, my favorite way of being around people is to go to a dinner and a movie by myself so like I like to be around a crowd of people but I don't have to interact with them (laughs) and you're not the focal Um, point yeah and I don't really have to talk and I do I just a lot of listening I like the hustle and bustle I grew I'm the oldest of five kids so like I'm used Mm -hmm. to noise (laughs) um so to have kind of grown up and then you're in college and it's just like you in your room and you're like what is happening um (laughs) uh so yeah so I I I have a million different relationships with quietness and sleeping and anxiety and mood and uh, I've learned so much about them over the mm-hmm. years in really interesting ways. Uh, and so, yeah, I wanted to get that. I wanted to get to do part of that with Izzy. Uh, I've never written completely or yeah, about bipolar disorder yet. I'd really love to at some point. Um, mm-hmm. cause I feel, you know, it's one of my pet peeves is to see really poorly written bipolar characters. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it's everywhere. Um, yeah. Uh, but it, it didn't come, it hasn't come up yet for a character, but for Izzy, it would only make sense that she would have anxiety. Oh, yes. And um, being a mother in that situation, yeah. right? I mean, even those of us who aren't very anxious people, <laughs> becoming a mother will make you anxious. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it comes with the territory. Yeah, it really changes things. And so I really wanted to, I, I really dipped back into like my first experiences with the meds for that mm-hmm. and thinking, about, okay, what is it like when you're first getting panic attacks? And what is it like when you first try that like weird dissolvable tablet that tastes horrible but kind of helps and yeah just all the little bits and pieces and I wanted to nail that as best as I could even though it wasn't it's not like a central part of her story um but but it also is um and I just I just wanted to as as accurately as I could capture it and also make sure it wasn't the focal point because a lot of times when people write characters with mental illness it it becomes like so central to like every decision they make is based on this and it's like that's not really how uh, mental disorders work (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. it's Mm -hmm. more of like a peripheral thing that you just kind of have to mind as as you go I recognize that I'm running up uh, out of time here but if you don't mind I want to ask you one more kind of big question and it's this idea that you had in the book about thinking that you're making an important decision very independently, that you've thought about the pros and cons, you've discussed it. And the big, one of the big decisions that Isabel makes is about whether or not to have a child in this bizarre world that's been created after the apocalypse. And so she describes how she thought about it, you know, the pros and cons, the responsibility of bringing a child in, And then it turns out, well, everybody had a kid. Like that was just what everyone did. And how disconcerting it is to think that you've made this independent decision. It turns out, oh, that's what we all did. Like we're just sort of sheep, right? You know, just doing what everybody else is doing. And it's such an interesting 
observation about how we see ourselves in a in the world. Of course, it's in a very strange situation, but still I could kind of relate that when you look back on the 50s or the 60s, and it seemed as though everybody was doing the same thing, they may have thought that they were each one, you know, independently making this decision. So I was so curious what made you think of that. Yeah, well, my I mentioned before, my mom was a biology teacher, and she would often throw things like that at me when I, mm. um, like, I remember when I was a kid, I was really worried that I wasn't like, or that I was very selfish. And that if we were in a dangerous position, I'd like save myself and I mm. like, would just run away and I wouldn't like help enough. And um, she's like, well, that's survival like that's that your program to do that like you don't don't feel guilty about that like that's mm-hmm. why you survive in a bad situation She's, and I remember too talking about uh sex a lot she'd be like oh well you know it's biological imperative that you that we're gonna like this uh-huh. <laughs> and that we're gonna enjoy this and that it's pleasurable and whatever and she so she was very snappy with uh, she always had some kind of comeback that like got us right back into science <laughs> right and, uh, so I often I I remember thinking about that also I have a group of friends you know that are very um very well educated, thinking well minded, thinking about the world. And I a lot of them will say, like, oh, I wouldn't be having a kid right now. Things are like this, things are like that. And I'm like, things were bad 10 years ago when we had our kids. <laughs> like we still did it anyway. Um, we still knew that like resources were limited. <laughs> um, it's like, are do are there more things? Yes, we're talking about more things now for sure. <laughs> but I do, I do think that's a little like I get I I don't want to keep having kids, um, but I think it's a lot more complicated than just my awareness of how dangerous things are right now, uh, which I, which I definitely am. But yeah, so it's, (laughs) I think it's a really interesting balance of, um, you know, the things we're, we're programmed to want, we're, we're, we're programmed to keep our species going. So it's not really a surprise when you want to, (laughs) and, and you don't have to beat yourself up if you do it, (laughs) you just do your best from there. Yeah. So it's a, it's, I'm just always, I like to remind myself of the science behind things in, in both ways. Like I, like sometimes I, a lot of my anxiety gets tied up with a, a fear of death, which I, I've come to realize is not, it's a neurochemical thing more than anything. Cause that went away completely when I got pregnant and I was Isn't like, Oh, well, I'm not, yeah. I was like, I'm not actually scared that this is just a hormone imbalance. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Um, so, so I know that I know that a little bit, but I remember my mom's comeback for that was like, she's like, you know, the one thing I don't want to be called she's like, I don't ever want to be called arrogant or, 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 and, th- or thinking, you know, thinking I, I would know everything about an unknowable thing. Mm-hmm. She's like, I'm never going to claim that. Um, and I, I always like to keep that in balance of like, mm-hmm. yeah, we know a lot, but we also don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I certainly am not going to claim we know more than we do. Like we hardly understand the brain. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot left to learn. So, yeah. So I, I think it's in line with that. And, and I do think that's inevitably what would happen if we had a, something really horrible happen. We'd start having babies again in no time. As yet. <laughs> we, like, yeah. we like sex and we like babies. I mean, babies are great. <laughs> uh-huh. 
Uh, so yeah, I think it's, you know, we never have uh, all throughout human history. We're not having babies at good times. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we've done it. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I'm sure a lot of those people were being very thoughtful about it. <laughs> not knowing that the cards had already been played for them. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting time, isn't it? Where we're sort of learning that through genetics or yeah, brain chemistry or all these different things that impact our decision-making, we still kind of think we're making decisions independently or that our personality is under our control. Speaking of arrogance or, you know, all these things, if we just behaved better or if we just were better, then then things would be different when it could be, uh, I imagine, many, many, many years and experiments from now. It's like, no, actually, yeah, that, that wasn't really under your control, you, <laughs> you arrogant little thing, you. <laughs> yeah, it's such a weird mix. I mean, we are our genetics, so it's like, well, you are, you are. <laughs> it's like you're mm-hmm. you're programmed to be this way, and your programming is you, so you're good. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Yeah, in yeah. some ways, it's a kinder way to look at yeah why we do the things we do. Yeah. Well, Sarah, it's been so lovely to talk to you. I'm sorry to keep you over. Oh, no, it was great. Uh, But before I let you go, is is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience if you'd like to refer them to your website or the book or really anything you'd like for them to do for you? Sure. Yeah. SarahBlakeAuthor.com is, and it's Sarah with an H, um, is a great place to go to you can read poems. You can watch a little movie of one of the poems. <laughs> that can... little movie is really cool. Actually. Isn't it great? Yeah, it's yeah. really neat. Yeah, it's worth it. I'll put the uh, website in the show notes too. But yeah, don't miss out on that, you guys, because it, it's worth a look. It's really, it's neat. Yeah, I had nothing to do with that other than sending my poem into the contest. And then she, uh, Aisha Altanach took it from there. And she's brilliant. And I just, I love that movie mm-hmm. <laughs> so much. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I can definitely say that because I have very little to do with it. So. Ah, interesting, right? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, she's brilliant. So I, it was such a such an honor that she chose my poem. And, and yeah, now I have this beautiful movie that I get to show. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so it's, that's a great place to go to and feel free to connect to me. I love talking with people. I started a newsletter even, and every month I try to publish something that's a little bit craft related, a little bit life related. Um, sometimes, uh, it hasn't happened yet. I plan at some point to write about what it's like living in Britain and to kind of expatriated and what's, what that's like. Um, but mostly so far it's been, well, why this book? Why, if anybody's interested in some of the things we touched on here, sometimes like I have a whole essay about, you know, why, why I wrote about motherhood more and writing why I write about joy instead of sadness. And yeah, um, a lot, a lot of, a lot of things like that. So <laughs> it's a good place to go. And the book is everywhere. Is that right? Yes, uh-huh. It should be <laughs> everywhere. Uh-huh. Books are sold as I used to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. And I, I sincerely do recommend it for my listeners. I really think you'd get a kick out of it. It's interesting. And if you're like me, yeah, you'll start trying to tell your friends about this cool book. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, if, if I don't get more people uh, to to buy it, I'm going to just start sending it out to people and force <laughs> them to read it. I just enjoyed it so much. So thank you so much, Sarah, for writing the book and and especially for taking the time to come on the show with us. 
Yeah, thank you for inviting me and for trying to capture it. It is difficult. I think we found we found that as we were trying to figure out the marketing for it is it's hard, it's hard to describe uh, and it's better to just, you know, read the first 10 pages and see how you feel. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I feel the same. Yeah, don't try and label it, just read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks again. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.